Uh, I really don't have anything to talk about. Just get right into the message because I'm a little long-winded today. So if you are new, welcome to Element. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you get some questions and some notes to go a little deeper into what we're talking about. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get the sermon notes and the verses and the questions and the announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Uh, This is Psalm 16, verse 11. And it says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who begin to understand all the good things that we see and have in our life that are really from your hand. And that we wouldn't focus on the gifts, but we focused on the giver of those gifts, which would bring so much more perspective into our lives where we would be able to glorify you and we live in that joy that you provide because you are the God who has rescued us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in week four in our series, the totally confusing book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm glad you guys were like talking and hanging out. That was great, because if you've been here, it's kind of a bummer so far in the book. So hopefully that goes to show that your joy is in Christ and not in our own merit and stuff like that. A big push in the book of Ecclesiastes is to ask and answer the question, what is the meaning of life? Like, do we go through our lives trying to find meaning in a bunch of things or understanding that our lives are gracious gifts handed to us by the hand of God and that we can live our lives in great joy and hope because it's not something we have to strive for. It's something that is offered to us by Him. And so sometimes if you have a hard time figuring out gift and giver and what those things look like, Ecclesiastes is a great book to walk through because when it clicks that everything does come from the hand of God, we get to enter the realm of the eternal. We stop finding things just under the sun and we realize that that peace and hope and joy don't have to have an end and they can go on forever. Most people don't get calm from the womb. It's really a gift that God bestows upon his people. And typically in our lives when the temporary takes over the eternal, we become lost and it becomes vapor, which Solomon uses that. That's his example. Meaninglessness, vanity, it's it's not rain, it's vapor, okay? The, the church father Augustine once wrote this, he said, he who has God has everything, he who does not have God has nothing, he who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. And so what Solomon is doing in the book of Ecclesiastes is trying to help us to understand that all we really need in the end is God alone. And so that keeps going back to the idea of when will you be content? When will you be happy? Because we are always looking for that thing that is going to complete us, to make us feel better. If we can control it, achieve it, master it. Many times we will even use God as a means to our own end. I will follow God. I will love God as long as he gives me these things and my life goes this direction. But when it doesn't, it must mean that God failed. It can't be that God wants to teach is something. It means that God must have filled. We're always even trying to use God to get the things that we think that we want. I mean, this goes for all of our lives. Think 16 years old. What do most kids want? Car, right? Freedom. I'm going to drive around. It's going to be amazing. Then all of a sudden you get that car and you realize there is maintenance and gas and insurance and policemen. 
and roundabouts and stuff like that. Or, or maybe you have a crush or your, or your first true love. A few people do marry their college sweetheart, and that's first love. You guys are weird, but most people, it's like you, you leave that first love, that first crush, and you get a few years later, and you're like, thank you, Jesus, for saving me from that, right? Because we realize, this, oh, I just got to have this, I got to, and it doesn't fulfill. And this goes on throughout life, where it's jobs or salaries. We tend to chase things until we die. And too often we fear being enslaved and destroyed by what we hate and disdain, but it's really much more likely that we're going to suffer at the hands of what we love and enjoy. Uh, Driscoll actually once wrote, Our passions and pleasures quickly become capricious gods who rule over us, yet are unable to grant us permanent joy or satisfaction. And that's because joy and satisfaction have to really do more with this internal environment inside of us and not the external, that Jesus and the gospel and his grace comes and restores us and renews us and that changes who we are, and that then goes externally out into the world around us. And so what we do and what we have labeled chapter 2 of the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon is going to show you his experience of his summations of pleasures alone, trying to find something that makes us feel good enough to fill our lives apart from who God is. And he will affirm the goodness of pleasure. And don't get me wrong, pleasure is good. I told you two weeks ago, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith starts off with this question, what is the chief end of man? What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify. God and enjoy him forever. And that is the understanding of pleasure. God wants us to enjoy our relationship with him and what he has given. On the other hand, Solomon will, though, will come in and he will show us that pleasure for its own sake, on its own, apart from God, it's inane and it's senseless and ineffectual. To work in our lives and seek only for pleasure without God being in the mix is meaningless. And that's why he uses the word vapor, vanity. It's this idea. You can't lay your hands on it. It just comes as a mist and then goes away. And so many of the pleasures Solomon will talk about aren't improper. They're not necessarily bad things. It's when we just want that thing, thinking it's going to fulfill us apart from God, it's vapor. So if a Bible, open to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you're in the app, you'll actually already be there. And Solomon, is, what he's going to do in chapter 2 is he's going to walk through the pleasures of life in verses uh, 1 through 11 of chapter 2. He'll talk about the pleasures of wisdom in chapter 2, 12 through 17. Then he will talk about the pleasures of work in chapters 2, 18 to 26. We're going to break those out every single week. So chapter 2 is going to take us through weeks to get through because that's how we roll. That's what I'm saying. Uh, Solomon pursues each of our pleasures, again, in an effort to see if there is anything on earth worthy of devotion to make us happy, only to discover in the end that he was a fool. And what I appreciate about Solomon is he is one of the few people who are humble enough to admit that. We in our lives will chase things and it keeps destroying us, and yet we keep chasing it thinking, no, 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 the next time it'll fulfill me, the next, and it never does. And Solomon is simply honest enough to say, it's, it's all meaningless, it doesn't work. So I'm going to read chapter 2, 1 through 11, then we'll break it out verse by verse and talk about it because I want you to hear it also in context. So, Ecclesiastes 2, starting verse 1. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools for 
from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of the kings of prov- and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines of the light of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this is the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." Kind of sounds like a bummer. Let's walk through it. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. So let me ask you a question. This is not a trick question. It's going to sound like a trick question, but it's not a trick question. Who here likes pleasure? Right, you should all raise your hand. It's a good thing. There is nothing wrong with that. God wants us to enjoy the things he has placed in our life because it's supposed to turn and direct us to worship of who he is. We become thankful of all the things that we have. You should like comfy shoes. You should want a warm, dry house on a cold and rainy day. You should want a cool house on a hot day. You should like food that ends in the word itza. It's It's important. If you had to choose pleasure versus pain, you should not have to get a council of people together and go, which one should I choose? We will choose pleasure. Do you want a nap in a nice, comfy, warm bed, or do you want someone to stick a hot fire poker in your eye? Which one do you want? Nap in a nice bed, yes. Do you want a steak, or if you're a vegan or vegetarian, whatever weird thing you eat, or do you want to starve? Which do you want? Yeah, that's what you want. So what Solomon is going to do is he's going to run after pleasure for pleasure's sake. And in the end, he will see, say, just pleasure for pleasure's sake, it is a mist. It's a vapor. It's meaningless. So chapter 2, verse 2, laughter. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? Do you like to laugh? I love to laugh. I remember sometimes you'll be with your friends and something happens and you're laughing so hard that your stomach hurts and your, and your head hurts, but it's such a good hurt because you're laughing so much. Some people, uh, they, they laugh so hard that they wet themselves. It's never happened to me, but I laugh at you when it happens to you. And if, seriously, it's going to happen. That's the best way for it to really happen, right? Because this is, this is what's, what's going on. Now, I have a sense of humor that has offended many of people who have walked through the doors at Helmet. Like... People come and they leave. It's not my intention. Like when I make fun of, you know, vegans and vegetarians and country music and boy bands, I, I don't disdain or hate. It's just, it's just me being sarcastic and it's fun, okay? So get over it. Um, but I have that weird <laughs> sense of humor. But if you could afford to have dinner with anybody who was funny, who would it be? Like I sometimes watch this show called uh, Getting Coffee in Cars with Comedians, and <gasps> I, I would love to go have coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, and I don't even like coffee. But I would be like, oh, yeah, it's the best cup of coffee I ever had because I never have coffee. But I'd be like, this is great. And I would just love to have that conversation. And so Solomon says that he lived his life just trying to laugh and find laughter. And laughter on its own, devoid from who God is in his life, it is simply meaningless. It's a vanity. It's a vapor. You cannot build your life on it. Chapter 2, verse 3, alcohol. I search my heart uh, with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how do I hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life? Now, if you don't know this, alcohol is a touchy subject in churches. I can show you the emails. Just let you know. Which also goes back to laughter. But anyway, uh, what is element stance? Element stance is it is an open-handed issue. You can decide to drink 
or not to drink. It is between you and God, open-handed. It is a matter of conviction and personal choice for you. Uh, Sometimes people have misconstrued the things that I have said up here, so let me just be clear. Element is not and has never been the church that says, go get drunk in Jesus' name. Okay, This has never, ever happened. We believe alcohol is a gift that was given by God to be enjoyed by his people, not abused. It is prescribed in the Old Testament for feasts as part of celebration, not for you to sit at home, drink a fifth of whatever, watching reruns of Saved by the Bell, trying to get away from your life. That's not what it's there for. And that if that is you and you have a problem, Element is a church that wants to be a community that walks beside you and helps you to come through these things because our lives are not meant to be focused upon alcohol. They're meant to be focused upon Jesus. But Solomon takes this, and he will run at it full tilt. He will essentially drink himself into a place where he lives inebriated for a period of time. But even in so doing, Solomon's a guy who drinks good wine, not the kind that comes out of a box with its own tap. All right, good wine. And honestly, I don't know how accurate this line is. I search my heart to know how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. That's what every drunk I know sounds like. Okay. Oh no, I can handle it. Oh, I'm I'm so smart right now. Every drunk thinks they're smarter than they are. Every drunk thinks they're more attractive than they are. They all think they have more friends than they do, and they're funnier than they are. Well, sometimes they are funny to me. It's like, but what? You know what I mean, right? It, You know what I'm talking about. Solomon took a good thing and he runs it into the ground. That's what he does with it. This is what our culture really does with everything. Like we take this good thing called sexuality and we turn it into lust. Where somehow today in our culture, if you have any type of affection for somebody else, you're supposed to be sexual with them. Why can't you have a relationship that is deep and intimate that doesn't have to be sexual? Why can't we do that in our culture? We take a good thing called, called food, which is amazing, and we turn it into gluttony. We take this beautiful thing called stewardship, where God gives us things to steward well, and what do we do? All of a sudden, we become arrogant about the things that we own or the other things that people have. Maybe they work harder. They made more money. How dare they? They're in sin. Let's take what they have and give it. Solomon says, Anytime we run after something for that one thing's sake, without God in the midst of our lives, it is always vapor. That's what it is. Things never lead to a fulfilled life. Only Jesus does. But that's kind of where we're going. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 4, construction projects. I made great works and built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I know some of you are like, man, if I could just move out of my parents' house, that'd be great. But Solomon is a guy, right, who undertook construction projects the like the world had never seen. Solomon ends up building the temple of God. It takes seven years and 153,000 workers to build this temple. He will then build his own house. He takes 13 years to build his own house. A little bit skewed, if you ask me, right? But Solomon is a guy who loved architecture and interior design. He could build whatever he wanted. What if you could build whatever your mind could conceive? Solomon says you will do it, and in the end, it's not going to fulfill. It's going to leave you exactly where you were before. Then he goes into gardening, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. He says, I made uh, myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So in all these construction projects, he also builds gardens. Uh, The word garden actually comes from this word called paradise. So he built himself little paradises. Uh, Personally, I like gardens more than I like gardening. Anybody? Right, okay. But think about it. If you are a garden type person, walking through the birds chirping, flowers, you're like Snow White. (laughs) You're doing your thing. Minimal people, no cars messing it up. I, I think that we all like gardens a little bit because we're kind of made in one. Our hearts kind of go back towards that. It's like an echo of home. But, but Solomon made gardens to rival Eden to sit in and get away from all the stuff going on around him. And he realizes that in and of itself 
is meaningless. It's a vapor. It's all that it is. Uh, chapter 2, verse 7. Servants, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Let me say two things about this before I go into talk about this. First off, uh, slavery in the ancient Near East is not like it was in America. It was not racial. Secondly, that doesn't make it okay. The Bible never condones slavery. You have to understand that. It will talk about it because everybody in all these cultures had them, but the Bible never says it's a good thing. Go out and get them. Okay, so let me just start there. So in our vernacular, let me try and do it like this. Um, imagine you could pay somebody to do for you something you hate doing. What would it be? You clip my toenails. You scratch my back. You pick up the dog do. You deal with that weirdo that always wants to argue at, with me after every service and element. You get to do that, right? No limit to your wealth. What would you do? What would you have? A baker, a chef, a fashion guy so you always look good, a mechanic. A, what would it be? Solomon has a literal army of servants to do for him everything he could want and desire. In 1 Kings uh, chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, it puts a number on this. Anybody have any idea how many it was? 35,000. Yeah, 35,000 people to make you look good. Half of like the city of Santa Maria, or to make you look good. What is the deal with that? This is, and he says, in the end, it's meaningless. Like, I can't even get one person to help me mow my lawn, right? But it's vapor. That's what it is. Chapter 2, verse 7, animals. I had, all, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Anybody animal people? I like animals. I do. I, I like horses and dogs and ducks and goats and chickens and maybe cats every once in a while, you know, not so much, but whatever. But think about this. What pet would you have if you knew, it, one, it couldn't kill you, and secondly, you didn't have to clean up after it? What would you have? Like you have 35,000 people to clean up after it for you. You don't have to do that. Lion, tiger, bear, oh my, what would it be, right? I would want a bear. I remember growing up and I saw Grizzly Adams and I thought that would be the best thing in the world to have a bear for a pet. Then I watch these YouTube videos like, here's the great bear. The bear's like, yeah, Ugh, take somebody out. And I'm like, I don't want a bear. But if it couldn't kill me, I'd take a bear. It would be awesome, right? You want to be, yeah, yeah, to wrestle with it and be like, oh, you're so strong. You know? But what, what would it be? Like, uh, I, know, I know some of you are cat people, so I'm not going to talk about you. But there's like, like spider people and there's snake people. And you ever go to Waller Park and feed the squirrels even though you're not supposed to? Don't feed the squirrels at Waller Park. Solomon amasses a whole menagerie of animals, farm animals, livestock, exotic pets, just because he could. And he said, hanging out with animals is meaningless in the end because it doesn't fulfill cat people. (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 8, wealth. I also gather for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. People used to have these things called checkbooks. And what they would do when they had a checkbook is they'd go and they'd pay for something they write in the checkbook so they know how much money they had left in the checkbook. Now, today, people just go and they use credit cards for everything. Then you get a bill at the end of the month, and you're mad at the credit card company going, like, how dare they send me this bill for all the money I borrowed from them? And we're all like, oh, this is terrible. Well, you know, what if you never had to balance a checkbook? Or whenever your credit card statement came, you didn't have to worry about it because you had so much money you could just, you know, just pay for it and never worry about it? I was talking to a guy this week who's, who's in debt, and he's like, I would just be happy to wake up broke. That would be an improvement, right? But this is why we dream about stuff. 
This is, this is why we play the lottery. And we think, oh, man, if I won this, it would be so great. Dream about all the things we do. And then we barter with God. God, if you let me win $37 million, I'll give you five bucks. I'll, uh, I swear I'll be so faithful with my $5. And God knows you won't be. So anyway. But you know, we do this all the time. What if you, Solomon, from taxes alone, he earned 25 million tons, or no, sorry, 25 tons of gold in addition to the golden exotic treasures that were brought to him by his fleet of ships. How's that? He says, it's vapor. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. Uh, how about music, right? Chapter 2, verse 8, I got singers, both men and women. Who likes music? Yeah, I like music, right? He lives in a time, there's no iTunes or Google Play or Amazon Music, no Pandora, no Spotify. So he has the money and the power to hire professionals to walk around and play for him at his parties and things like that. Imagine not just having the money, but the power to have anybody play for you that you wanted to. Middle of the night, you wake up, it's like, hey, Matchbox Trony, play 3 a.m., all right, you gotta you gotta go to the bathroom and it's not working out right. Ace DC, play some Thunderstruck because that's what's gonna happen right now. <laughs> right, whatever you want. Uh, Solomon, he has concubines, so he's like, oh, I got a new concubine. Dave Matthews, play some Crash. You know, or gotta go work on the chariot. Oh, uh, Foo Fighters, play some Monkey Ranch. He can do all of that. On you could hire all the boy bands, stick them in a closet, and shut the door and never let them out. <laughs> he could, and he says, on its own, it is a vapor. It is meaningless. He chases after it. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8, sex. I will be PG. Don't worry. Uh, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. Again, that is not farm equipment. The delight of the sons of man. The NIV will say, and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. Now, don't raise your hands because this would be awkward. But I, I think, you know, I was going to say, who likes sex? You know, I think... I think 10 out of 10 people who try sex and, and do it right in a loving relationship, you're married, you give to one another, you communicate, I, I think you like sex. Uh, some people are like, I'd be happy just to have a date. Well, we're talking about Solomon here. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. That is 999 too many, by the way. But he had 1,000 people to meet his sexual desires. It's not a mental porn kind of thing. And the sad thing is people about this dream about this today, oh, if I could just have that, that would be so great. Every time it happens, it is a nightmare. There is no real intimacy. There's no real being known by someone else. And Solomon says, this too is a vapor. There we go. It broke on the sex one. I don't know why. (laughs) That's what he said. It's a vanity. It's vapor. It is meaningless on its own. Chapter 2, verse 9, fame. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. This is the American Idol, the Facebook, the Twitter, the Instagram dream. Everybody's watching you. you got so many followers. He's the rock star of rock stars. The nightly news always has a segment about whatever Solomon's doing. And when he speaks, everybody listens. And he says, it is meaningless. It doesn't bring satisfaction. Chapter 2, verse 10, he says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. This is like the junk drawer. Anything else you didn't think of, that's where it goes. Like sports and fishing and gambling and eating and shopping and exercise and traveling and watching plays and reading books. He has the capacity to do whatever he wants. And when he runs at anything, he realized that thing on its own is simply vapor. It is meaningless. Chapter 2, verse 10, work. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. The NIV says it like this, my heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Some people are like, I'd be happy just to have a job. Some people are like, well, I'd be more happy if I was my own boss and I can have a posse and tell everybody else what, what to do. Solomon could work or not work. He could do whatever he wanted to do. And he realized work just in and of itself is vanity. It is vapor. In the end, it will not fulfill. 
And not that work is bad. You should work. Not that any of the things he talks about are necessarily bad, but what we need to understand is that on its own, apart from who God is in our lives, it is vapor, it is vanity. We are invited in Ecclesiastes to see lots of things in the light of the truth. So we come to the same conclusion that Solomon does. And it's so hard for us to accept because we always assume there is something else out there. If I just find that thing, I will be so fulfilled. But we never find that thing because that thing doesn't exist. It is only found in the person of Jesus. Solomon's conclusion, chapter 2, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, that's vapor, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You're like, no, yes. Even the the naked people, yes. Even that. Even all the money, yes. Even the alcohol, yes. Even the cats, (laughs) yes. Meaningless, because we're not designed to find our ultimate satisfaction in the temporary. We're supposed to understand this and praise God because of it and enjoy it, but it's only temporary. And yet our culture today, it so reflects the mind of Solomon. We are the richest and most affluent people in the history of the world. And we are also today the most depressed and bored. You know, in 90 nations today, people will spend less on their basic needs than we spend on our garbage bags. Each year, more Americans will declare bankruptcy than graduate from college. The average American has $5,500 to $8,000 in credit card debt. That's not counting your car or anything else. That's just credit card debt because we need it. We buy it. We don't want it, but I'm going to buy it anyway. We collectively have $1.04 trillion of personal debt in this country. That is huge. I know it doesn't sound huge because our government's like $20 trillion in debt, but that is actually a huge number. We work more hours each year than any other nation. In the United States of America, we will spend more on shoes, jewelry, and watches than on our own higher education because we like the bling. Our supermarkets have 250% more items than they did 30 years ago. Have you been to the supermarket? You go to the cereal aisle? It is staggering. It's like there is nutty and fruity and corn and flakes and rice and bunnies and lucky charms. And all. There's, it's all, and you're like, what do you even buy? What do you get? And then there's the fake lucky charms, which is cheaper, but doesn't taste as good for some reason. You know, probably made in the same factory, but it's not in the right box. So it doesn't taste as good. Parents will send this year on average of 5,800 texts to their kids and 260 emails, but they will only spend a half an hour each day actually talking with them in conversation. Studies now show that parents sitting right next to their kid will actually text them rather than talking to them. <gasps> hope it didn't hit too close to home for you. I hope it did. Between 1970 and 1999, the divorce rate was said to have tripled. Between 1999 and 2018, it actually dropped 8% because people are taking longer to get married or not getting married at all. Uh, during that same time, 1970 and 1999, the teen suicide rate triples. Uh, in 1999 to 2014, it went up 24%. Uh, depression is soaring in our country. Because we make everything in the end about ourselves. We tell people, follow your heart. Your heart will tell you what to do. You know what the Bible says about your heart? It's stupid. (laughs) Stop following your heart. Your heart's going to drag you into all these horrible places. It says, stop trusting your heart and trust what God has said over you. I've got a friend I was talking to this week. And in his heart, he feels like he's worthless and miserable. everything, And he keeps listening to his heart. And I go, stop listening to yourself. Listen to the things that God has spoken over you and not what you say about you because what God said is the thing that actually matters. 
Guys, what Solomon is saying is that in the end, it's not just an academic thing. It's not just mental. It's that we've hardened our hearts to only listen to us. We run after what we want for ourselves. We don't run towards him or what he calls us to. We run towards ourselves. In Romans 1.19 to 23, the Apostle Paul says it like this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has shown us who he is. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. That we have all these good things that God has given, but we refuse to acknowledge him for those good things. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and in their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I would say that's called stuff. Stuff. Paul sees the same problem that Solomon does. And he says the issue in the end is going to be an issue of our hard hearts. Solomon comes to the conclusion that we are built to worship God, not the stuff that God gives. We are built to enjoy the pleasure, enjoy the things that he gives, because it's meant to steer us back to him. And Paul makes this argument that there is a creator and there is creation. And when we confuse the two and worship stuff, we become depressed and we become frustrated. Paul says we see it, but we refuse to accept it. The simple wisdom that is there. And Solomon says, so often we'll then rearrange our lives, hoping something else is going to make a difference, but it never, ever does. And today we will find TV talk show hosts and books and gurus and teachers trying to reinforce our beliefs that try and keep God's simple wisdom at bay. It's an internal problem. The point is that Solomon and Paul say that we are all worshipers. We all worship something, whether it's time, our own energy, money, our own brains, our own passions, people, places, animals, something. Solomon lived his life like trying to find the right thing to figure it out. And he, in the end, was completely miserable because he was his own center. Uh, if you take the words of Paul, Paul said, would say that uh, Solomon was handed over to himself and his own desires. And he nearly destroyed himself in the midst of it. Solomon did. And so Paul goes on in Romans 1, 24 and 25, and he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It's that God is a God who gives us great and good gifts, and we take his gifts, and we stare at these gifts, thinking that the gifts are the point. The gifts are not the point. The giver is the point. One writer says it like this. Solomon learned that happiness is a gift that God gives to those reconciled to him and their neighbor by grace. That only comes by being and never having. By being in relationship with him. By understanding. It's not having all these things. And I think if we're honest, a lot of churches now would say things like, uh, don't be like Solomon. right? Uh, don't, don't drink. Don't have sex. Don't laugh. Look like you drink month-old milk. God's mad all the time. If something feels good, repent. That kind of thing. Let me read you something of how the Bible actually talks about this. It's long, but this is Colossians 2, 16 to 23. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. That's like a holiday, Super Bowl Sunday. Right? Uh, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That means staying away from all of these good things. And worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, that's Jesus, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, 
arguments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as though you are still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What he says is rules and staying away from things. They are not going to satisfy or fulfill you either. We can make up all these rules about piety, saying something is wrong. It's not going to stop anybody from wanting to try that thing. We need to realize the world around us is, lives its life like they're bad at math. Okay? And so does the church many times as well. But outside the church and Jesus, it's happiness by addition. I need more alcohol, more fame, more money, more sex. Inside the church, we tend to do the exact opposite. It's happiness by subtraction. Don't drink, don't have sex, except to make babies. Don't eat a lot, don't have money, don't joke. Be serious all the time. It's like the joker, why so serious? Right? All the time, that'll make you happy. I think people are living their lives in this way. They're, they start running after everything because that's what everybody, oh, just run after what you want. And they realize it doesn't satisfy. And they look in the church and the church is like, be happy like us. You know, and, it's, and it's horrible. It like makes no sense whatsoever. People bounce between these two extremes. In Desiring God, John Piper says that Christians should be about pleasure, but our pleasure is first found in our Savior, understanding His saving of us and what He has done to bring us into relationship with Him. And if we live for true joy and satisfaction and pleasure in our lives, they can be found nowhere else than first and foremost in the person of Jesus. God made the earth good. He made us very good. He has wired us to enjoy His creation. It is why food tastes good. God could have made dog food nutri-nuggets that grew on trees. Eat that. It stinks, but it'll keep you alive. But no, God makes good food. God made cows, made a steak. God, God is amazing in what he does. God makes music that sounds good. God makes holding the one you love actually feel good. God wired us like that. But our world is also fallen and broken. We should live for joy, but it's like C.S. Lewis says, we are a people who are always far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Like we could have a feast and we settle for gluttony. We could have a party with friends and yet we'll settle in the end for drunkenness. We can have great music that uplifts our souls, but instead we settle for music that tears others down. We, we could laugh and yet we settle for all this coarse joking. We are a people who have been called to have our sins forgiven by what God has done for us. And yet we settle for a righteousness that makes us think that I have to work it off myself. I've got to make God love me. I've got to do all of these things. And it is God who comes and rescues us. It's not our own merit or our own work, but for some reason we want to try that on our own instead. Guys, we should be a people who commit ourselves to pleasure and joy and satisfaction and not settle for anything less than God. That's what we should be. And if you really want true joy, you have to find your satisfaction first in Christ. In Psalm 1611, the verse I had you stand for at the beginning, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasure comes from the hand of God. And it's not just that he gives it, he is it. And so if you are a vegetarian or a meat eater, a wine drinker, a beer drinker, a water drinker, a juice drinker, a cat person, a dog person, you have to know the creator to enjoy the creation. And so often we settle for cheap imitations that never satisfy. And Solomon says that is meaningless. Consequently, our culture today, we have sex but not love, and music but not worship, and wealth but not stewardship, just like Solomon. 
His life looks just like us. And what I wish for all of you, my prayer for you, is that you would drink well, you would laugh hard, you'd sleep soundly, you would eat well, uh, and one day you would get married and you would chase one another around for 50 years. And if it takes you with a walker with tennis balls on the bottom going, get back here, you know, you keep going. Maybe they're faster than you. Will you just be like Jason in like those Friday 13th movies? He always walks and he always catches them. Just keep consistent. You'll get there. All right? You just, you go. And you thank Jesus for making you in the midst of it all. That's what you do. That is how we stay away from sin. That is how we find meaning in the great gifts that he has given because we find they're in him first and not in the things. And so your homework, if you're single or married, go out to dinner this week with some friends or hang out at a Super Bowl party today and, and then cheer on the commercials and, you know, whatever you get. But, but find some joy with one another. I, I would encourage you, if you are married, chase one another around. Chase one another around. Just be like, stop chasing me. I know he said to you, but stop. Be like, get your hands off me. Oh, I'm handsy. You know, just <laughs> go. Have, have a drink. Don't get drunk. There's all these, cheer for your favorite team. But if they don't win, what's the big deal? It's a game. And the refs are half blind anyway. You know, it's just, it's, it's what it is. Because you're, you're Patriots, Rams, your life isn't found in Patriots or Rams. We love God by enjoying what he has given us. Because without worshiping him in the midst of it, it is all meaningless. And that is what Solomon is trying to get at. All the pleasures you could run after are never going to fulfill you if your life is not first found in the person of Jesus. This is why at Element we talk about communion every week. Communion is this place of reverence and hope and forgiveness and grace. We break the cracker like Christ's body was broken for us because we couldn't work off our sin by ourselves. We couldn't work off what separated us from God and us from each other on our own. This is why God came in the person of Jesus to do it for us. And communion is the representation that Christ's body was broken for us for this. He dipped it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us that God has shed his blood to rescue and save us and bring us in it's a reminder of what he has done and communion can be a place of great and sober reflection but it can also be a place of great joy and hope and again we're not a church that passes communion around the room it's you've got to get up it's a response to what god has done in your life and so we encourage you to do that today the band's going to come up as they do i'm going to invite take communion there'll be some deacons and elders in the back and if you need prayer if you are in a place in your life right now where you're trying to find your hope and satisfaction and pleasure and all of these things and it's always falling short It's never coming up to what you intend or mean it to be. They would love to pray with you about that. Because when we find ourselves and our hope and all that we are in the person of Jesus first, all the gifts that God gives can actually begin to be used as gifts. And they're not things that hold us down or pull us away from him. They're things that can actually draw us closer to who he is. Because we can live in the great joy and the pleasure that he has given us. There's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response to what God has done. Uh, There's food. We put food in the foyer because it was raining outside. So you can grab some cookies or something that are in there. Grab some sermon notes. Meet some other people. Hold them over your head as you run to your car. I don't know. And ask one another some of the questions that are in there. You know, what, what things have you tried to find satisfaction from in your life only to realize it just doesn't satisfy It doesn't. What things have you you sought after to bring you joy, only to realize in the end it doesn't bring true joy? Talk about that with one another. Then encourage one another to find all that we are in the person of Jesus. Because when we find ourselves in what Jesus has done for us to rescue us, to bring us back in, our lives all of a sudden start to make so much more sense. Because our God is good. 
And he intends for our joy and our pleasure to all reference back to who he is because enjoying the things God has given is a form of worship. So I would encourage you to worship well. Let's pray. God, this morning, I ask that you would remind us of your grace and the hope that you consistently give to us as your people, that you are the one who has brought us back into relationship with you, that you are the one who restores us when we consistently run away from you and try and find all of our satisfaction and hope in places apart from you. You call us back in. You lead us. You draw us to yourself. And I ask that that would also be true today for all of us in this room. That when we start to look at things around us to give us purpose and meaning, we realize that those things aren't the point, but that you are. And understanding that's going to change how we begin to interact with those around us. We'll cease to be so upset when people pull us away from our desires. We'll cease to be so, I think, even depressed in our own hearts because we realize that our lives are not about us, they're all about you. And that we would be a people who would praise you as the one who has paid what has separated us from you and us from one another. And that you have brought us back into a place of righteousness. And that we'd understand that our lives lived with you is better than living any other way. And we'd realize that this is simply just a gift of amazing grace from you. Given to us. So teach us to live out this life as your people in joy-filled ways that honor you in all things. So that the world would know how gracious and good you are. And we would understand better the hope that you consistently give to us. Thank you for loving us and drawing us in. We ask all these things in your son's gracious name. Amen.